Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. I see a lot of conversations on the internet that kind of go like this. I'm looking for X kind of dog. And here's the long list of criteria that I need that dog to meet. Does anybody have any breeder suggestions for me? And every single time this long list of criteria that this dog has to meet are literally in contradiction to what this breed, this type of dog, is all about. So people want a border collie, but they don't want any possibility of noise sensitivity. They want perfectly social with dogs and people. They want the dog to tolerate two walks around the block um, a day on a short leash, meaning six feet, maybe even a flexi, but on a leash. And they want the dog to do agility and maybe obedience and rally and, you know, all the things. And they also want the dog to be perfectly healthy and live to be 16 years old. Now, do I think you should get a nice dog? I think everybody deserves a nice dog. Yes, I do. But I think that we need to get real about the fact that there are compromises with whatever dog you choose. So that's kind of one way that this conversation goes is I want this kind of dog and I want it not to have any of these problems and what breeder should I pick? Or the person says, this is my lifestyle. I want this kind of dog and their lifestyle doesn't match that kind of dog, but they want a special one. They want a unicorn version of that dog. The other way this goes in sports circles is people see another person being successful with a certain kind of dog And so they get that kind of dog because obviously it's about the dog, right? It's obviously the skill and amazingness that the dog brings to the table and not the countless hours of training and not the years and years of studying pedigrees and pairing, you know, pairing dogs together that should produce kind of the right amount amount of whatever that this breeder has done. And it's all about if I just get the right dog. So this attitude of, if only I had the right dog, is really damaging to not only us, the dog owners, but also dog sport competitors and also dogs themselves. The pervasive idea that some dogs are special, especially in the sport world, is really, really harmful. Uh, The number of people who I've heard say, you know, well, such and such dog is special. Such and such dog is, you know, just world team quality or arch quality or, you know, whatever else. This dog is just special. 
here's why it's so damaging. It makes it so that the story you tell yourself about why you don't get things, why you don't achieve things is true. So it makes it so that you can tell that story and it can feel true to you. But it also creates these other stories in your head about your fellow competitors, about breeders, um, about so many people that are not true. But the story makes it feel true. So the story goes like this. I've never won a national agility championship because I've never had a good enough dog. I've never had a fast enough dog. Okay, the story goes like that. Story goes like this. Well, you know, I bought a dog from this breeder and I love my dog, but this breeder doesn't know anything about temperament. And so they produced a dog that is kind of a mess and can't fly on an airplane, right? It goes like that. It also goes like you're watching a person have success, have success after success after success. Maybe they make the world team with their dog. Maybe they win nationals. Maybe they, or maybe those aren't your successes. Maybe they're putting their Mach 12 on their dog or whatever it is. And you're going, man, that's a nice dog. In reality, all dogs have problems. The easiest dog to run is a well-trained dog. And the trainer is the one who decides if that dog is well-trained. So the route to that success is through you. My friend Nancy Kemna says, um, we just need good enough clay, <laughs> right? So you need, just need the dog to be good enough clay, meaning it's quality enough clay that you can make a really, really amazing, um, you know, whatever it is you're making out of clay, ceramic pot. Um, if you then also take it upon yourself to learn how to create that thing and make that thing, I know people who have consistent success with their dogs and their dogs are all different and their dogs all have problems. Some of them have problems that could have been prevented on the breeder end. Some of them have problems that could have been prevented in the socialization end. Some of them have problems that couldn't have been prevented by anyone. And yet these people are consistently successful. I know more people who wash dogs really regularly. They go through five or six before they get to the one that they want to keep, before they get to the one that they think that they can be successful with. And as long as all the dogs are being taken care of, I'm fine with all of this. But the bottom line here is that unicorns aren't real. Unicorns don't exist. So when you go seeking your unicorn, right? You go seeking your dog that's got the perfect temperament that doesn't require a lot of exercise, but that will be ripping fast on the weekend and will be exactly what you want and will be a really fun training partner for you. You know, when you go seeking that, know that there will be something going on. There will be something wrong because all dogs, just like all people, are flawed in one way or another. So when you're looking for that dog, know what your compromises can be and know what they can't be and then kind of focus your energy there. So rather than focusing your energy on perfection, think of like one or two deal breakers for you and make sure that what you get isn't going to be a deal breaker. And then work really hard to become the picture that you actually want to be. So like whatever the picture is that you're seeing in this unicorn dog that you think is real, that's attached to not you, because that's the thing, is if you think unicorns are real and you're naming unicorns, you're saying, because they're over there, they're attached to that person. I know people who call their own dogs a unicorn, and I think that that's fantastic and lovely, and I, I wanna tell you all about how perfect all of my dogs are too, 
but I'm also really, really realistic about what's wrong with them and really honest about the things about them that are not perfect, that are not unicorn-like. So when you are thinking, I want this kind of dog because if I just had this kind of dog, I could have whatever that success is that I'm after, look at the human half of the picture because that's the part you have better control over. Look at the human half and go, what is this person doing that I could be doing with the dog that I have now? Rather than trying to chase down that unicorn that's not real, you know what's not a unicorn? Committing yourself to a fitness routine that will help you be a better agility handler. That's not a unicorn. That's hard. Speaking as someone who's recently taken it on, it's really, really, can be really tough, but it's also so, so rewarding and you see the results and it's, I highly recommend it. But, you know, that's one of those things that maybe that person is doing. Or maybe this person has beautiful clean training mechanics. Take that on. Help yourself be better. The person that you are today, your current fitness level, your current training level can change, will change. So try to help a change in the direction of your goals. If it is time for you to get a new dog, fantastic. Ask yourself what those deal breakers are and ask yourself what the unicorn looks like. And then ask yourself, you know, what ugly scar on the unicorn are you gonna accept? You know, and you know, what, what temperament problems <laughs> that this unicorn comes with are you going to accept? And then, do your best to find a dog that kind of meets those parameters and then step up to the plate with whatever it is that shows up. Because I think so often in our sport, we just go, well, that dog is really special, right? We see a dog that's on national podium again and again, and we see a dog that's on the world team again and again, and we go, you know, God, that dog's incredible. And I think that that's a really... That's a really natural, normal kind of human thing to do and human way to look at things, but it isn't real. So sure, say, wow, that dog's incredible, but then, then recognize everything that went into that dog. Recognize the human part of that dog and try to emulate the human part of that dog as much as you can because that's the part that you can control and that's the part that you can change. Unicorns do not exist. So get busy now helping yourself get closer to your goals without trying to kind of chase down some fantasy that's just going to lead you to having five dogs on the couch that aren't getting what they need because they weren't what you needed and so you kept getting another one. Okay, and let's have some Patreon questions. The first one comes from Lena who writes... Hi, Sarah. I have a two and a half year old miniature American Shepherd that has barky lungy behaviors towards dogs and people, but also on the TV screen, mostly when it's movement slash dogs or a lot of colors. And I've tried to train this by letting the TV stay on during the day, give treats when she disengages, etc. But nothing is working. And uh, he barks and bites at the TV when triggered. Do you have any thoughts about this behavior and what to do about it? So it's funny because I'm running uh, my fix-it course right now over on FDSA and there are two dogs working through this issue and now Lena's asking about it as well. 
And I'm recalling my parents had these two pugs. Um, they still have one of them. He's very old. He's too old to do things like this anymore. Who used to just maniacally attack the TV anytime there was a dog on it. There's one pug in particular, Oz. I mean, he would just go insane. And he even knew certain commercials that were going to have a dog. He knew the jingle. And he would just start to... And I'm laughing because it was so funny because he's a little pug. Um, and he would just start to amp up and he would make these pug gremlin noises. And one day they um, actually crashed through a TV screen together. Um, so it can be very serious and it's definitely something that people deal with. And you have a few routes that you could take with this for sure. You could train an incompatible behavior. You could train the dog that animals showing up on TV means do something else and get food. You absolutely could. You could also go a desensitization route and literally play nature documentaries 24-7. Um, protect your TV if that happens. You could also, um, you know, obviously you could correct it. You could remove the dog from the room anytime they do it and kind of go, if you want to sit with us, you aren't allowed to bark at the TV and I'm going to remove you from the room if you do bark at the TV. Potential fallout that comes with punishment is always possible with that. I think that I would take a combination of all three, essentially. So for me personally, it would be, I would first try for a couple of weeks just having the TV on nature documentaries all the time. And I would watch the dog's behavior. And as the dog's behavior started to be less and less um, kind of reactive towards the TV, I would start to kind of choose those disengagement behaviors from the TV and reinforce those. So I would almost take kind of a smart times 50 approach, uh, which I've talked about many, many times on the podcast, but essentially it's just reinforcing behaviors that you see that are happening naturally. Um, I would reinforce those disengagement behaviors the dog chooses. I would also increase the dog's exercise so that they were less likely to kind of need an activity and take that need out on the television. And then I would only have the dog sitting with us um, watching TV if... I was ready to train the dog. Otherwise, I would put the dog somewhere else with a Kong or a Rawbone or something because I think that one of the biggest issues with these problems that crop up that are household issues is that we just can't wear the training hat all the time. It, nobody can wear that hat all the time. I'm pretty good. Like, I see behavior pretty much all the time. But... You sometimes just want to sit down and watch TV, right? And that's why my parents were never successful with the pugs. I did give them a plan, but they just they just couldn't bring themselves to be trainers enough, right? And so um, they basically just dealt with it <laughs> for the duration of the lives of the dogs um, until, like I said, one of them is too old to do it anymore. So you you have to be training if the dog is there watching the tv with you and so and i would just be marking and reinforcing laying on a station or something like that you could even train the dog to run out of the room like you could put a station out of the room and if you see an animal come on tv cue them to leave the room and go to their station and then get up and go feed them there or even train them you know release them when the thing is gone to come back in for food and it could be kind of a fun game for you that's just, again, not necessarily sustainable for everybody. Um, and then if the dog did start barking at the TV, this is where that kind of third approach will come in. 
I would approach them and remove them from the situation. So I would, I would go and physically take them away from the TV and take them in the other room. And I might leave them there for a second, like maybe put them behind a baby gate, leave them there for a second when they offer me calm behavior, let them come back in. But it is, it's complicated and it's multifaceted. Number one, just like everything, you have to stop it from happening um, before, you know, in uncontrolled situations. So like when you're doing nature documentary desensitization, I would do the easiest thing for the dog to watch. So I would do, it would be quiet. There wouldn't be any noise triggers with it. So I'd have the volume way down and I'd probably be doing like, you know, elephants. Okay. Not cheetahs. <laughs> right. So, um, or, oh gosh, there's a nature documentary about mushrooms on Netflix right now. And I know Lena's not in the U S so it's possible that she doesn't have access to that, but, um, a nature documentary about mushrooms or insects is a is a really good split because nothing is running or screaming or snarling or anything like that. So think of your splits for your desensitization, man. Just get as nerdy as possible and good luck. Next one comes from Emily who writes, My four-month-old lab, Gimli, has started jumping up to access the counters and stovetop. Uh, we clear off and wipe down all surfaces when not actively cooking, but it's hard to block access completely as we haven't opened a floor plan. He has not yet successfully stolen food, but is there anything we can be doing to establish a no jumping on the counters boundary? So I notice, uh, first of all, Emily, that the puppy is only four months old, and so the puppy really should not have access to your kitchen unsupervised at all. Four-month-old puppies need to be in an X-Pen, on a tether, on a leash, constantly supervised. They cannot just be allowed to hang out. Um, and the reason is stuff like this. Stuff like this reinforces itself and just grows into a problem when it didn't need to be if it was never allowed to begin in the first place. So never allowing it to begin, never allowing it to be an option is how you get this to not be a thing for your adult dog. So your four-month-old puppy should not be just kind of roaming your house. They should be supervised all the time. Like I said, X-pens are your friend, especially for an open floor plan. You could X-pen off the kitchen. You could have the puppy um, tethered to a person. You can, you know, the puppy should be actively supervised or confined pretty much all the time in your home so that you are preventing this. Because if you're not going to prevent it, and there's you've already done a great job of not having any food on the counter, then you are really left with aversive control types of options, um, which I don't like. And especially in a young, you know, puppy dog that can could make some associations that are not helpful for their life, I would be avoiding using any kind of corrective measure. As well as just, I don't think it's fair if we've not done our due diligence due diligence. So like the puppy's four months old and you're saying, how can I get him to just know the boundary of not jumping on the counters? It's kind of like saying, you know, my two-year-old, my toddler just keeps, you know, crawling into this one room. Like how, I have an open floor plan. I can't keep her out of this room. Can, how can I teach her to not crawl into that room? And everybody would go, well, why is your two-year-old just allowed to crawl wherever she wants? Right? Playpens, supervision, that kind of thing, that's the same thing as your four-month-old puppy. They shouldn't be just kind of given those options that are not safe for them. So best of luck, Emily. Puppies do get older, so try to make sure that you do all that hard work now with all that supervision and confinement now so that you don't need it later. Next one is from 
Jillian, and I'm going to preface this with that I am planning a full-blown episode on some of these behavior problems, but I am going to read Jillian's question and see if we can get some answers from her. Jillian writes, my three-year-old border collie is resource guarding my desk slash office area. As I work from home, this is an area that I am in for most of the day. Prior to moving, the border collie would tend to resource guard underneath the desk, but by just laying there and claiming her space, sometimes giving her giving a snark face, which my other dog doesn't tend to notice or care about. Now that we have moved, the new office space is a loft space with stairs going up. The border collie has begun snarking and growling when the other dog comes up the stairs into the space. I can escort him into the room and he will peacefully lay on his bed in the office and the border collie will stay laying near the desk. Most of the time, they're both laying calmly on their beds away from the desk. However, when I'm in calls and one decides to come visit me, this can cause an issue for the border collie. I'm wondering the best ways to manage this or train the border collie to share this space. I've removed her from under the desk with a collar give and asked her to go downstairs, but the problem hasn't gotten better. So the episode that I'm planning is actually all about just dog-directed resource guarding, so dogs that guard spaces or objects from other dogs or people from other dogs, because I get a ton of questions about them. It's also not a mistake, and this is another episode that I've planned, that this dog is a border collie. And that the dog that she is guarding against is not, is a simpler type <laughs> of animal. And so what this dog is doing is claiming a space that doesn't actually belong to her and saying, you have no business being in it. And Jillian, it absolutely has to do with you as well, because as you mentioned, the dogs are fine until maybe your simpler dog approaches you for affection or something like that, or until he's actually trying to come into the space. So what you really have to do is step up and kind of be the manager of this situation. So I'd be working really, really hard on a go to station cue so that you can cue your border collie to go to station when your other dog is approaching or approaching you. She's going to get nasty and snarky and whatever, and you are going to simply tell her, no, you need to go there and you will go there. And, um... Being the manager of the situation is something that we have to do when we have super controlling herding breeds. They need us to control the scenario because they want it controlled. They don't necessarily need to be the one controlling it. But as far as she's concerned, this is unauthorized entry into this space and she's controlling it. And it is a kind of intrinsically reinforcing situation because the dog is inherently removed from her space whenever she does it. This is not a full-blown behavior modification plan for you, which you probably need to actually make this better. But I would be simply directing her. What exactly do you want her to do? And ask her to do it. Um, and I wouldn't be, and you know, your other option is that she's not allowed in that space with you. And those are kind of your two options. You have to control it and be on top of it and be a dog trainer the entire time. Or... She's not allowed in that space. Because you've allowed this to become a problem, now that's kind of the situation that you're in. And um, so best of luck to you. Like I said, you do need a full-blown plan if you're really going to kind of solve it. And the episode that I put out will not be a full-blown plan. It will just have more kind of tips and tricks surrounding this. So best of luck, Jillian, and you know where to find me if you want that full-blown plan. Final one for today comes from Elise. Elise writes, I've had this issue tumbling around in my head for a long time and was wondering if you could do an episode on it. And to be clear, Elise, I probably will do an episode on it, but I want to answer this question now. 
Um, over the past few months, I've heard several agility competitors who have dogs that aren't that into agility or who are thinking of getting a breed that historically isn't a top agility prospects. Uh, whippets and other sighthounds say things like, I will just make it love agility, or I need to figure out how to make my dog love agility. There are dogs that don't get up first thing in the morning to do agility. I know, I have one of them. I know she's pretty much doing it for me, and I have had to do a hard pivot regarding my expectations for her, of her slash for her, which I'm happy to say I'm totally at peace with, and I'm so, so grateful I am where I am now. I love her for who she is, and when she is having fun, I'm having fun. But I'm starting to get twitchy eye when agility people look down at their dog who's working as hard as they can in a sport they aren't that excited about and say things like, uh, he or she needs to learn to love this. I'm going to make her or him love this. You can't make a dog love anything, can you? Both eyes start twitching when I see treats withheld, making the toys the only reward and repetitions of the same obstacle over and over when the dog clearly was done five times ago. Please, please, please do a show about this. It's because of your podcast that I learned to look at what my dog needs versus what instructors were telling me. Elise, my eyes are twitching uh, reading this because you're totally right. And I think that in general, this will go on the list of like a future agility myth busting type of episode. But here's my response to you right now. Of course, you're right. No, we don't get to make anybody do anything in reality. And we least of all get to make somebody feel a certain way, right? The pervasive attitude in the sport of dog agility that A, agility is good for all dogs and fun for all dogs. And then B, that you can make a dog like the sport because of course it's inherently fun for all dogs is so insidious and such a huge problem in our sport. I wish it would just die. I wish it would go away. The belief that agility is inherently fun for dogs makes people get away with so much garbage with their dogs in this sport. I was at an AKC trial recently and I was, you know, just taken aback by... And honestly, this is not new. Just me going to a lot of trials is new. <laughs> um, and so I was really just taken aback by the number of dogs who were miserable, who appeared miserable to me. And also the number of dogs who were lame. So physically not actually able to do what they're being asked to do or in very, very poor condition. And it's astonishing to me, truly, how much of that is just excused um, in this sport. And again, I think it is, I think it all trickles back to this pervasive attitude of if you're just the right kind of trainer, you can make them like it, that if they like food, you can make them like agility or, or if they like toys, even worse, you can make them like agility. And I am here to just call bullshit on it. And thank you, Elise, for also seeing that this is garbage. And that is it for today. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists, where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dog Arena and get access to my training sessions with my own dogs. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash Cog Dog Radio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.